0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This
1: podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at TheASC.com. My name is Ian Stasikevich, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. Photographed by Michael Saracen BSC and directed by his longtime collaborator Alan Parker, Angel Heart is a stylish neo-noir about Harry Angel, a private detective on the trail of a missing crooner who's reneged on a contract with the devilish Louis Cipher. Released in 1987, Angel Heart isn't your average neo-noir. It's also a horror film and a psychological thriller. It's an entertaining and beautifully shot film, and Saracen had a lot of memories to share about its making. So now, on with the interview. Michael, these are some of my favorite kinds of movies, the gritty 1980s neo-noirs like Body Double, To Live and Die in LA, and Black Rain. At the time you and Alan Parker were making Angel Heart, did either of you see it as being part of a defined genre?
0: No, I mean, Parker and I have a very close rapport, very close. And I think we wouldn't have discussed the look of the film. We just had almost an unspoken, well, it's again an aesthetic thing. It's a very dark story. You've got, you know, Mickey playing a sort of strange character, De Niro the devil, Lisa Bonnet, and the whole thing is dark. I mean, it starts dark and gets darker. So if the storytelling... Photography's got to tell the story, it doesn't want to be super. Well, I use the analogy of a supermarket, it wants to be dark, uh, chiaroscuro sort of lighting, very heavy shadows where you're not sure what's going on. I mean, the whole thing is an expression, is very expressionistic, and I think that that was probably without discussing it. And we decided to do that. I remember we shot some tests, uh, I think they were wardrobe tests actually for uh, Mickey's. A wardrobe, and we found one of those old-fashioned elevators in the basement of a building. I think in Soho or somewhere, and it uh, <clears throat> was meant to go up and down. And the electrician was moving a light behind. Them, and there were the elevators, which have those um, like like a cage, industrial elevators. And I thought, I just said, you know what, we're not going to move the elevator. Just move the light. And we shot these tests, and they actually ended up in the film. They literally you shots of Mickey in an elevator. And that almost those tests set the tone for the film. Sort of three-quarter backlight, hard shadows going over Mickey's face, seeing enough of his eyes for a beat, his hands, his body, and so on. And that's, and it's only now that I'm talking to you that it occurs to me. And I remember the producer Alan Marshall, who was also an editor, saying, "Well, oh, those tests are so bloody good, mate. We're going to use them in the film, I think." And uh, that set it up, but. You know, in a way, you read the script and say, okay, it's night, it's dark, it's day, it's dark, it's uh, exterior day, it's going to be dark. And so you figure out the locations, time, day, to film, if it's day, obviously fitting in with a schedule, but also as appropriate as if you're using the sun and so on. I remember that Alan, Alan and I, on virtually every film we did, we walked through, just he and I, nobody else, walked through every scene in the film on the location. It might take us a couple of days. Uh, and, uh, well, a film like uh, Angel Heart is different because part was in New York, in the city, part was in uh, New Orleans. but And so we have a feeling for it. We don't, we don't discuss discuss how stuff is. It's sort of mutual trust as well, I think. You know, he knows that, we'll trust my... Uh, sort of interpretation of the scene from a light and camera point of view. And you know and he's a, he's a very visual person anyway. He's a very, and if there was something he didn't like, he'd say. So if there was something he liked he'd keep it to himself, but that's how he is.
1: It sounds like a different sort of prep than what you had for your most recent film, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes.
0: Yeah, but you couldn't get two films more different. I mean, first of all, the literary was, there was a, a lot of prep time uh, I'd shot in New York before. And it was, you just couldn't get, you couldn't, I mean, this is no visual effects, no special effects, no CGI didn't exist then, no green screen, blue screen, painted mats, nothing. We filmed stuff as it was, you know, we found the locations, it was all locations and it was, uh, you know, no sets, dressed dressed locations. And uh, no, that was it. There was no 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 art, of, well, every film's artifice, but no artifice compared to was, that you get on apes.
1: And it's helpful to actually
0: visit the locations where you know you're gonna shoot. We just walk and say, okay, Mickey comes up here, stops there, and I'd say, well, actually, why don't we just pull back a little bit further so you start just with footsteps. You say, no, I don't like that. Oh, yeah, okay, let's do that. And then, of course, on the day when you have the lights and the set and the actors, things change a bit. You always have room for maneuver, you have to. Uh, but that was... Yeah, no, it was everything felt it's probably one of the most seamless films in terms of uh how everything worked together. Production design, direction, script, performance, lighting, camera move,
1: etc. The cinematography in this film can be very gritty and natural at some times, and then over the top and very expressive at others. Roger Ebert, I think, was paying it a compliment in his review when he called it an exuberant exercise in
0: style. That's the sort of comment that one can make after whoever makes it. We didn't set out to do that, not at all. I mean, I've never, Parker and I, or me and Al Becker, or me and whoever, wouldn't sit down and say, let's make this exuberant, let's make, that's somebody else's interpretation. We made the film uh, look appropriate for the story. Slightly bef- because of the drama of it, because of the, the strange sort of darkness of the story and so on. No, there was never ever a, uh, it just e- it evolved. I mean, we talked about it. I remember reading the script. It came from a novel which Parker sent me. I then read the screenplay. I then, you know, went and got to New York. We started talking about it. And then we looked at locations and I said, I think it's amazing. This will be a bit tricky, but let's make it work. Because a lot of those things are decided before I'm there and, you know, along with the production designer and so on. But, you know, as I said, Alan has a, has a very good uh, visual sense, very good, very strong, very developed. So we sort of work in tandem on that. And then I write it to make it work, shoot it to make it work. And there's never ever, I mean, the, the, the comments, exuberant style or impressionistic, this is just how it was. We didn't set out to do that. But it was appropriate for the film. I mean, there's no good making it look like a musical comedy. Such a dark story would be, I think, totally inappropriate.
1: You don't often see films that look like this anymore, um, I think, and the the ultra-stylized Hollywood thriller. Uh, What's changed and do you think it's the technology behind the filmmaking or do audiences expect something different?
0: Probably a combination of them. I think there are films that still do look like that. Maybe not American films. Some of the smaller European films still have that sort of black and white quality, if you like. Uh, I go to this film festival in Poland each year called Cameron Barge and there's quite a lot of films you see with a similar, occasionally black and white, occasionally color which have that feel. I think it's also a very film look, it's very, do you know what I mean, it's film film as opposed to digital and something, I mean, in fact, I would love to shoot a film like that, you know, a low-key drama with a, with a dark story. Whether it happens to be, you know, a love story or a you know, a criminal thing or something as far-fetched as Angel Heart, you know what I mean, which has a slightly surreal quality about it as well. I like that, I really do. I mean, I, I find that a challenge and uh, I would like to do something like that. But you're right, it, there's less of those. There's a title card at the end of the film uh, saying that it was shot
1: entirely on location in New York City and New Orleans. Uh, in what ways did you disguise the 1980s versions of these cities to resemble their 1950s counterparts?
0: Well, first of all, New York then, compared to now, still had a lot of real traditional stuff around. You know, whether it happened to be windows or staircases or elevators or... And then you had dressing, you know, cars and, and like... And if you look at the way Mickey was dressed, it's a pretty sort of, you know, a crushed linen suit. You could wear that, you know, Sydney Green Street wart in Casablanca. Do you know what I mean? So it's a sort of, there's something almost timeless about it uh, in that respect. And I think you, 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 in your notes you mentioned that. And it is a sort of, it's there's, it has a classic element to it, you know, whether it's a Dashiell Hammett logo as described or as, as visualised. And I think it was sort of, Quite traditional. I mean, I've been in Harlem probably not too long ago, like five years ago, and seen people walking down the street buying horses in a funeral. And a lot of the women were dressed uh, quite similarly to some of the women in the, in the funeral scene in the Angel Heart, very traditional, very classic and so on. But the, the, the disguising stuff, see, props help do that. Um, but a lot of the internal architectural spaces are very similar. I think now, as I said before, would be harder. And Louisiana, New Orleans, we we're in the French Quarter for a lot of it. And some of the back areas of the French Quarter are unchanged, probably in a century. You know, the, the scale of the rooms, the size of them and so on, so that's, that helps enormously. There are also ones which you choose, you know, the location scout looks at them, sends photographs to us all, we choose ones, go and visit them and say, look, there's a minimal amount we need to change here to make it work for the period, uh, for the appropriate period. And then there's some minimal set dressing, And then maybe walls are painted an appropriate color and so on. So it's it's, it's a mix of all of that. I think it would be tougher now in New York. The film feels very modern.
1: You don't always sense that it takes place in the 1950s. Oh, it's part of it. Absolutely.
0: I mean, the thing is, it's sort of there's an elements of it, though, which are timeless. You could probably make the film today. There's still people who dress like that. The cars are different. The dialogue might be a little bit different. You might have a cell phone. You might have a, do you know what I mean, some more modern accoutrement. But basically the story is fairly timeless. You know, you could have done that in the 20s in a lot of ways. You could have done 30s, 40s, 50s. I don't even know why the 50s was chosen. Maybe, I don't remember the novel if it was the 50s or, or later because William Pittsburgh, I think was the writer and he, I think it was probably a bit later than that. And Alan may have made it. Back into the 50s for, and I don't remember that conversation, although was something a little vaguely familiar, he may have made it go back into the 50s for style.
1: Did the novel have any bearing on how you visualized the film?
0: No, I, I take everything from the, um, from the, from the screenplay. Because that, that's the Bible, if you like. That's the thing that, you know, that's the, that's the film you're making.
1: The New York you depict is very dark and shadowy. It's kind of a hellish New York, which seems appropriate for the story.
0: Oh, absolute darkness. I mean, the thing is, it's a dark story. A lot of it takes place at night or where there's not much light of it's daytime. And therefore, it's sort of appropriate. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the 1950s for sure had a lot less light around than they did in the 70s, 80s. I mean, Manhattan's a very bright city, even the little back streets. So from the opening scene, you know, with a cat coming across the body, the, the title sequence, it was decided to make it really dark. I mean, that was a decision. We said it's a dark story and we'll make it look dark. The performances are dark. I mean, it's not, not the, the humour and it, It's pretty dark as well. So it, it is appropriate for there to be a lot of shadow, a lot of darkness, light illuminating the absolute minimum you need to see to get the story and to add to the mystery of it. A lot of people were quite frightened by the film and still are, actually. I mean, I know I had a screen, when was it? In the last couple of years, maybe, no, I don't recall where. And people after said, boy, that's a scary film. And there's been some super scary films since then, in the last, you know, 25 or so years. So it still, it still affects people quite strongly, very strongly, in fact.
1: Were you deliberately trying to make it scary in the way that you
0: filmed it? Oh, really, I mean, that comes from the editorial when you put sequences together, because when you're filming them, you know, you film before and after the scary bit. And it's the moment, you know, the, the scary bit cut together with what becomes before uh, and after. You're sort of aware of it, but often things change quite radically. They do in the cut, do you know what I mean? It doesn't always follow the screenplay. And you sort of, you know, sometimes I think, well, okay, we want, we want a suggestion something's going to happen. Maybe we just see the shadow before we see the person. And so we'd, use, we'd try that and then I'd look and say, you know what, it's too, it's too corny. Let's just have the person burst into shock. Or let's have only shadow. And so the audience has, and I can't think specifically of where, but I do recall vaguely uh, a shot of Mickey going down some stairs. It wasn't Mickey, it was somebody else actually. And then we see the shadow and we follow the shadow and come up on this, this sort of women dressed in black in this corridor. And it's it sort of, I can't even remember it was in the film actually, just remember doing it. And the, the gaffer saying to me, you sure you just want to see shadow? I said, yeah, it'll be okay. I said, Al, what do you think? He said, yeah, fine. And that would be it. So, I mean, a lot of it, it's not making it up as you go along, but the thing is when you're shooting film film and, you know, you've got four lights, it's pretty easy to switch, make one higher, lower, stronger, weaker, further back, further forward. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not a major thing. It's not like, you know, lighting a ballroom for a period film and, you know, the great Gatsby or anything. You do have room to, a lot of room to manoeuvre scene to scene, shot to shot.
1: There are a few moments in the film where it shows its noir roots, like the scene in Doc Fowler's apartment. If
0: Alan and I had any discussions, we probably would have said film noir. Because, as I said at the outset, we, we have a sort of unspoken, you know, we just work together so much that we sort of have an intuitive feel for how stuff is what the other's thinking. And in the end, it was a very, uh, it was a. F- amongst the best of our collaborations or most successful and I think in that respect it was, you know, he'd turn up on the set and we'd, you know, figure out what was going on, you know, which he had a pretty fair idea and it would be lit within an hour or so and then we'd just get on with it and there'd be slight tweaking here and there if, you know, the camera moved a bit more than we thought or the actors performed you know, moved a bit different than he and I had talked about but pretty much it was uh, as we discussed from the outset and we probably did use a word like film noir You know, detective fiction. I don't remember it, but probably. Um, But the story sort of leads you to that. I think any other interpretation for me would not be true. One of the things that
1: I love about this film uh, in particular is that the cinematography really speaks to the viewer. It tells you things about the characters and the story uh, in very subtle ways, like the scene where Harry uh, is in his office dictating the details of the case to a tape machine. He holds the microphone in a very specific way, and he's lit, like a singer on stage, which kind of hints at a connection
0: between him and Johnny Favorite. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that's one of the duties of cinematography is to tell a story with light and image. And it could be that it doesn't come out of the dialogue or the performance, but the light suggests something and then it's up for the audience to interpret. And that way you really engage an audience. They say, Jesus, is this what's happening or is that what's happening? What do you think that meant? And it fires up the imagination. I love that. I really love that. And that's the reason I like darkness. I think that if you, you know, the sun or bright light illuminates everything, doesn't leave that much to open to the imagination unless it's surreal. But if you're talking about a film which is real, which had surreal moments, in Angel Heart, that is, then that darkness gets an audience thinking about something. So also the music, which is very uh, quite hypnotic in the film, I think, you know, the suggestions, is everything okay or is it not okay, what's going to happen next? And it did really keep an audience on the edge of its seat. I mean, some people, were, you know, as I said earlier, were very, quite influenced by the film. And uh, it's, it's a very, what's the word, not persuasive, it's quite a manipulative film in some ways. And it can manipulate the audience's, you know, emotions combination of music and sound effects performance light and so on and that was something that was decided you know it, it is a very strange story if you think about it with all sorts of overtones of, you know evil and good and evil and with voodoo overtones with incest uh, with all sorts of stuff and do you think that
1: gave you license to be more expressive with how you depicted the story because it's also kind of a fantasy film
0: no, I don't think so. Because listen, it's not. It's not. We're not. We're not. It's not a docudrama. It basically, it's basically a piece of entertainment. So I think if Angel Heart came along today, I'd probably do it identically. To tell you the truth, I mean, there are certain films I look at and say, oh, Jesus, why didn't I do this or that uh, that I've shot, and even other people have shot. Why do they do this or that? Which is a matter of taste or judgment. Angel Heart is one of the few. I'm. I'm not proud of my work. In I don't think like that. But I think it's maybe the best marriage of. Uh, visuals and storytelling and performance do you know what I mean the, the 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 sort of interrelationship works really well no I would do it the same and to be honest with you looking at apes there's a couple of scenes uh, you know because I know it pretty well now um, that might, I would have changed a bit but not a lot and that's not to say I'm you know pleased with myself there's always another way of doing it but when you think about something at the outset sort of in your waking moments in your sleeping moments when you wake up I would probably do it very similarly. And Angel Heart for sure. And Angel Heart's a lot easier film to make because it's classic filmmaking. You know, you have a camera, actors, lights, all the other sort of accoutrement, you get on with it. Whereas with native 3D and CGI, you have all these interruptions. It's essential to the process. But for sure, there is no room for spontaneity in native 3D shooting. Absolutely none. Whereas on the uh, Angel Heart, you know, I remember sometimes with Parker, we'd go out for a drink at night and say, Jesus, look at that light. There it is. There's a light swinging in the in the in the in the wind, you know, in the pouring rain. Well, can't we do that somewhere? And you say, Yeah, let's do it down in Louisiana. And we did it. We literally I can't remember the scene. I don't even know if it was in the film. It might have been when Muddy not what's his name, the blues musician walks out of the club. That sort of spontaneity in a native 3D movie is virtually impossible. Maybe very tiny things within a scene but overall not at all. And that's one reason that, uh, for me, Angel Heart worked. Eventually, the story moves south to
1: New Orleans, which really feels like a different place, but still a part of the same world.
0: I mean, the real darkness in the story starts coming out down there. And I think that it also, you know, New Orleans is a brilliant city. I mean, maybe, a little bit less so now that it's but architecture, if you look at the design, I don't know if you've been there, the French court is incredible and when there's nobody there when it's empty it does have a very also it's it's a repository of so many different cultures, the black, the, the Hispanic, the French, the the Cajun, the, and it's almost the least American city in the US by far. A little bit these days because it's become a convention city which sort of screws it and tourists and so on. But even, you know, we wanted to run French Quarter a little bit with a friend and I was saying this is where we shot this, this is where we shot that. And Behind that gate you wouldn't believe there's a whole labyrinth of little houses and corridors and uh, verandas and little pokey little rooms and so on.
1: Did the change in setting uh, affect the way that you shot the film?
0: Photographically, no. But I think it's inherent in the in the you know the, in, in the architecture, of the buildings. I remember once going into a store which sold. Actually, there was a version of it in the film, the sort of selling all the, the voodoo stuff, you know, all the sort of potions and so on. And there's a couple of stores, not in the French Quarter, outside, where people go for that. Really, you know, they go in and they, you know, their husband's been fooling around. What can I get do to keep him on the straight and narrow? And they sell these potions, St. John, you know, the, this and literally the whole place is filled up with that. And these are not for tourists. These are where people go, you know, the locals go and get stuff. You know, it's like a mini supermarket of sort of mm, voodoo potions and God knows what else, candles and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, and that is almost like an abstract element of the film. You know what I mean? You see it manifested occasionally but it is an underlying quality of it. You know, whether Lisa Bonnet at her sort of voodoo ceremony out in the forest or, you know, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, those things exist. It's not, that, those are the figures, they are written but they do exist there. And we, I remember filming in an area where the Cajuns lived and that was weird, really weird guys living in these little shacks, you know, over the swampy areas there, and speaking this sort of pigeon French. And even though they knew we were coming in, and this is a big film, you know, and a lot of foreigners, if you like, there. But they still, they were quite friendly, but there was a caginess about them. And an atmosphere, for sure. And in some ways, it's captured on the film. What lenses did you use? Uh, the lenses we, chose, we shot on Araflexus and I think they were Cook lenses, and I quite liked the... Uh, The resolution of them, they're not too, they're quite, uh, they're not soft, but they're not, I've never been a big fan of Panavision lenses, they've been too sharp and hard, mainly it's because of the projects I've shot. But I think the Cook lenses, I'm almost certain that's what we used, just felt right when I shot some tests in uh, New York. They just had like a nice feel to them. And there was a consistent quality in the resolution and in the colour. I think they're the same series I used on Midnight Express or maybe a slightly newer version of them. and. the couple of times we used to Zoom, they matched those as well. Now that, now these things are much, uh, we have a much bigger choice, almost too much. But that's good in a way as well. So you, you could choose a lens you think, oh, a series of lenses appropriate for the story. Do you remember which film stock you used? I don't, know, But I've always liked the older film stocks. The ones which well, I use the word patina and Alfonso Cuarón says grain. But they, and in fact, at one point we were trying to emulate that on apes, but we just, it doesn't work in 3D a digital version of it, but they are stocks. I've never been a big fan of the Kodak stocks, which are very glossy and shiny and sort of brilliant. I prefer the softer ones, the ones which have, for me, just, well, patina is the only word I can think of. How do
1: formats affect the way you shoot a film?
0: Well, film stock has got a lot of tolerance, and uh, I tended to underexpose anyway, so to get help give some of the, the visual quality. And it does does do interesting things. You've got to be a bit careful sometimes. I'm not being that technological sort of cinematographer. I did screw up occasionally, but I like playing, you know, it on the edge a little bit. I'd like to
1: talk about a couple of specific scenes because I think they're great examples of the subtle horror and extreme horror that really characterize this film. The first scene is a day interior a restaurant in New York City. Harry and Louis Cypher are talking about Johnny Favourite, and Cypher is eating an
0: egg. That was a real location in, in, uh, I think, down in the Ukrainian area of Manhattan. And uh, Because Parker and I used to go and have lunch nearby, and he said, oh, this place looks like us shoot here, which we did. And De Niro saw the dailies, and he didn't like it, and when he came down to shoot the Louisiana part of the film, said he'd like to do it again. And then we had to rebuild it down there. And uh, I think he ate 12 hard boiled eggs. And he, he said after the second lot of uh, shooting, he said, Oh, great. And he already said to me last time he'd had like 15 takes, he was constipated for a week eating hard boiled eggs. And he'd eaten 12 of them. He said, Well, what do you think, guys? And you know, Alan said, Yeah, that's great. So, well, I'm happy too. And then I said to the focus puller, Just tell him you've got a hair on the gate. <laughs> and on, he said, Oh, it looks like we've got a hair on the gate. And De Niro said, Oh, Jesus, no. He said, Man, made a rather uh, inappropriate remark about not having a dumb for a week. And anyway, that was a joke. But no, that was for sure. I mean, the timing, his performance, the marriage of him doing something physical, which is pretty unique, peeling an egg, I think, with one, uh, one piece of just going round and round and round while he, with that long fingernail, asking if he'd like a bite and putting the salt on it and taking a big bite off of that evil grin. No, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Mesmerizing, actually, even when you're shooting it. How did you cover this scene? The shots on him, and I think a couple of reverses on Mickey. You know, it was, it was very simple because it's, it's not the sort of scene that you really want to break up with a lot of cuts, you know, because he's doing so much. You don't really need to enhance anything. You know what I mean? I don't remember the number of shots, maybe three, maybe a close-up of his hands on, on the air.
1: How many cameras
0: did you roll? The first time I ever used two cameras, was on with with Pacino on on uh, City Hall because he changed his lines all the time. No, we did we did uh, only one camera
1: ever. So De Niro's is very consistent.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it takes him a while to find you know his sort of. Uh, his, his, his way of doing something, because the way he worked then, now I'd have come. Is it was just him and the director on the set. They go through everything. And then the DP would come on, and then gradually would come in. While he went off to get hair, wardrobe, makeup, and so on. We would, uh, you know, light everything and sort it out. then he'd come on, have a couple of rehearsals, and we'd start shooting. But uh, no, he's he in those days took a lot of a lot of time to find his sort of vibe, if you like, and then he'd settle into it and he's really and also scene like that. There's not a lot you could change because it was a very well well, like most of the film was very well written, and it was the balance of the physicality of what he was doing, his performance and his dialogue. And they worked seamlessly.
1: Is the cinematography saying anything here?
0: Well, he was in a cafe, so you couldn't make it look totally, uh, you know, like look, sitting in a, r- a room with a candle on. But within the confines of that, we made it as dramatic as we could. I do remember in the original restaurant, we were sort of trying to make it quite moody and it didn't feel right. And there was a lighting on him compared to what was in the background. So ultimately, the way he's dressed, the way he, You didn't really need the lighting to, to uh, interrupt. Do you know what I mean? To make it something that was inappropriate, to make it more dramatic because the scene in itself was pretty dramatic. See, and being in a in a in a cafe, which normally in the daytime, uh, it's relatively bright, but within the confines of that, we kept it appropriate, maybe underlit a tiny bit, but really a tiny bit, because I remember putting a light up and looking at it, and, and at, while they were rehearsing, I thought, you know what? It needs a little bit more light. It's too, it's, it's not right. It's too, the light, it, it's too intrusive. I don't like it when lighting takes over from performance. My job is to get the, you know, the light appropriate to the performance. And to be dead honest, I soon as see an amazing performance lit okay as opposed to phenomenal photography in a mediocre performance. I think that, you know, they need, for me, a very personal thing, they need to balance.
1: The other scene I wanted to talk about is the totally insane sex scene between Harry and Epiphany uh the voodoo priestess uh it starts out as this very sweet moment but then becomes this protracted sexual nightmare and then blood starts pouring from the ceiling and how do you even begin to conceptualize uh a moment like this
0: in the, in the end you know i knew what the scene was as they, she goes there they start dancing and the next thing um, you know they're, they're having sex and then it's, it's a rain then there's blood and i remember there was five of us in the room uh, mickey and lisa and uh, we had a handheld camera one camera we had uh, actually i'm wrong that was panavision we shot on i just remember because it was a big heavy camera so it wasn't a reflex so it would have been panavision lenses so i'm dead wrong about that Anyway, um, and it was an actual room, tiny room, maybe twelve feet by nine feet, with another smaller part of it, and a little bathroom off it. And the scene where he smashes the window, we did that there as well. The ceiling had been rigged with water, then with red water to be blood. I was sitting on the floor, hand holding a tiny light, just out of the range of the camera, because it was the operator, the focus board the director, and me in the room. That was it. Um, I guess a sound guy. I don't remember him actually, but there must have been. And, uh, well, they had radio mics and maybe the recorder was outside because the room was tiny, as I say, 12 feet by nine max uh, with a small double bed. In it. And then in the actual sex scene, I was sitting on the floor hand-holding this light and all I could think of was, you know, and we were just shooting everything they did, you know, different lenses and so on. And they were, it was uninhibited, it really was. and Probably the most uninhibited stuff was on the cutting room floor. But it was... Uh, all I could think was once it started raining, and we we're getting wet. I thought, Jesus, I'm going to be electrocuted, hand holding this <laughs> light, shooting a scene with Mickey and Lisa Bonnet. That'll be all. <laughs> Died while shooting a sex scene. I thought, Jesus, great. But uh, no, you don't. I mean, from the outside, I guess people can look at it and say, oh, what did you think of when you're going to do it? At the risk of sounding sort of. Um, Dismissive. It's part of what you do, whether it's a love scene or a sex scene or a violent scene or a domestic, you know, mum, dad, and two kids scene. Yeah, I don't know. I just it's it's part of the job. You don't sort of think what its import is in the film. Maybe other DPs do it in different ways. I can't speak for them. But
1: did you have a plan for how you're going to cover it, or
0: was it more of
1: a spontaneous approach?
0: No, the camera was at the head of the bed for a major part of it. Then we did some low side angles. Um, you know, Mickey, I mean, they just kept going. We were just changing magazines. I mean, we, we literally, at the end of this, there was just the five of us in the room for four or five hours plus the two of them, and we looked like, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because we shot it in sequence. First of all, and then dancing, and then them, you know, uh, making love. Then it starts to rain, then the blood. And uh, I think the next day we did the rest of the sequence or maybe the day before, I don't remember. The crew about 50, 60, 80 of I mean, we were waiting around outside drinking coffee and having cigarettes and we looked looked like some mad ax men had attacked us because we were covered in all his blood everywhere. But um, no, it was a very, very powerful scene. You're sort of aware of some of it, but it's really only when sequences are put together with all the added thing, you know, the light, the photography, the... the Uh, composition, the performance, the editing, the music, that's when it really, all the elements are put together, most of which are on film and the added ones are music and editing, that you realise the power of a scene. And occasionally I've looked at scenes, not in that film particularly, and said, Jesus, had I known it was going to end up like this, I might have done something a bit differently. But you never know how it's going to end up for sure. I mean, it doesn't always follow the script. They're not a pair of, you know, the, the script's not railway lines about how it's going to be. It's a general direction.
1: It sounds like it was a pretty unique experience, even after all of the films you've shot since then.
0: There's a lot of real positives about it. Alan and I got on real well. They were a brilliant cast. The story was great. The two cities, I love New York. I love New Orleans. And, uh, you know, I think we made a really powerful film. I think I do. And an iconic film as well. And perhaps not even aware of it at the time, which I really love. You know, I know when people say, oh, can you show a film? Because I own a vineyard and You know, we make wine and let's have a wine and film evening somewhere, wherever it might be, New York or, I don't know, New Zealand or London or Hong Kong or wherever, Italy. And they say, oh, do you mind if you show Angel out on Midnight Express or maybe whatever? I said, yeah, sure, and then it brings memories back because I was pretty young when I did it too. You know, I was very fortunate as a DP. I started very young and worked with some, you know, still do really good people. But so your memories are pretty strong, especially if they're enjoyable memories, positive memories.
1: What other positive memories uh, from the production stand out for you?
0: I do remember we shot the opening sequence for the film, the title sequence. And we'd been shooting, we were doing splits, afternoons and night. And we'd been out in Coney Island doing the scene with uh, Mickey on the beach and the light was dropping. We came into Soho and Alan said, oh, I'm going to meet Charlotte Rampling. Do you want to come and say hello? I said, okay. So I we went to this bar and sat down. Charlotte came and I met her and we started. And I'd met her before actually. But we started talking and uh, we had a drink and then uh, Alan said, go on, you better get out and get back to work. I said, yeah, all right. I'll it. So I went up Then he turned up and he had another drink. He said, oh, well, how long are I going to be wait before you're ready? And I looked at the gaff and I just gave him a nod and all of a sudden about 10 huge lights, about 10 blocks. Of, Came on over about the next 30 seconds and said, Okay, we're ready. She said, You fucker, you know. <laughs> that, that, that was it. But no, I mean, day to day, there were scenes. I mean, when you shoot stuff and it looks good, and, you know, we had to wait a couple of days for days. Not, nothing really outstanding because also it's hard work. You, there's quite a lot of, not stress isn't the word, but the thing of, what's the word I'm looking for? Concentration, always concentrate, always looking. You know, you're I mean? always being aware, maybe altering something a bit to make it work. And also, you're lighting faces and people most of the time. And they do things slightly differently from take to take, shot to shot. So it's accommodating them. And I don't, I don't like being an intrusive cinematographer. You know, I don't like asking actors and actresses to do stuff. I want to, I want, I think part of what I do is accommodating them. And I find that a challenge, and a, a good challenge.
1: That was Michael Saracen, B.S.C., talking about his work on the 1987 film Angel Heart. Thanks for listening.
0: This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.